Rick Retreat Horror Cast, hosted by yours ghoulie, Ricky J. Duarte. I'm finally back after taking a bit of a break, and I couldn't be more excited about today's episode. My guests today are masters of their crafts, both of the stage and screen. Tracy Bennett is a star of Broadway and The West End, a double Olivier Award winner for She Loves Me and Hairspray, and a Tony and four-time Olivier Award nominee. Now, she played the role of Sharon Gaskell on the iconic British TV series Coronation Street and provided the voice narration for the audio versions of Bridget Jones's Diary, as well as The Edge of Reason. Tracy is currently starring in Here We Are, Stephen Sondheim's final musical performing at The Shed at Hudson Yards here in New York City. Adam Mackey is a graphic designer, 3D animator, writer, and film director whose first short film, Few of Many, was released in 2021. His latest film, a horror short called End of Story, stars Tracy Bennett and is currently in post-production. Please welcome to the podcast, Tracy Bennett and Adam Mackey. Hello, darling Ricky. Hello, hello. I am so grateful to both of you for taking the time to be on my show. I am just such a fan of both of your work, and I can't thank you enough. Well, thanks. We thought you would be on Halloween times, but I guess you were booked up with other goodies and spookies. It's true. (laughs) I had had a bit of a list going, but I'm so happy to have you on now. I met Tracy, you were on Broadway in End of the Rainbow when we very first met. Mm-hmm. I used to work at a piano bar in the West Village that I, I will remain nameless because I don't <laughs> like too many tourists showing up there anymore. <laughs> I probably saw you then. <laughs> it's uh, Tracy, you know, we've kind of run into each other through the years every once in a while, but we finally really, really, really connected uh, just a little earlier in this year. And I'm so grateful that we did. And uh, so that grateful. Fun, that- right? Yeah, it was such a great time. And, uh, you know, I've seen you in, I saw End of the Rainbow. I saw you in Hangman on Broadway. And of course, I recently saw Here We Are. And you are always just a, a pure delight, a fireball of talent. And um, <laughs> and now having seen this short film, End of Story, you get to flex a whole set of acting muscles that I had never seen out of you. So I'm so happy to have you. <laughs> oh, well, that's Adam for you. He got that out of me. Um, we, had a, we had a really good... Um, gig up there it was very spooky i mean i know you want to talk about it later and uh i'll leave adam to most of that but uh just to say quickly it was a very spooky location um noises in the night you know we were doing a lot of night shooting so we just had to keep our energy up and the the crew were delightful um it, it was a spooky house and you know the family who lived there actually were there with us all the time and helping us along our way and doing coffees and little bits of other things. And uh, they were just very supportive and you know, and we got through it. And it was a lovely um, town um, to walk through. We we had a few meals out of it, didn't we, Adam? When yeah, we- it was really fun. It was, it was a beautiful town. Yeah, it's beautiful. 
gorgeous home too. Uh, where did where did you shoot? Uh, we filmed it in Warwick. Uh, it's like a two hours drive from the city. Mm -hmm. The producer suggested uh, because we found uh, the exact the you know the 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 house that we needed and it was we wanted and it was you know in Warwick, so we had to drive all the way there. It was easy for for us to go there instead of bringing all, everyone, all the crew here, because the producer lives somewhere there. Yeah, so, we all we all shared this house uh, with, with kind of different schedules, so we were very respectful of each other. But um, I'd worked with um, Sebastian, the lead guy in it before, so that was easy. Uh, I knew Adam from before, so that was easy. They kind of had meetings downstairs, but they let us sleep good because. You know, night shooting, your body clock changes again, um, and so uh, I get. I guess we were kind of tired but excited at the same time. You know, and and you're always under pressure when you you want to give the director what he wants, and and Adam's very collaborative, but he knew exactly brilliantly his movie vision in his head, like he knew what shots he wanted. So well, you made it so easy, anyway. So on me. Especially. Well, we made it uh, pre-production yeah. values, yeah. so we spent quite a bit of time beforehand, which, you know, we had the luxury to do, thank God. I flew out earlier, then I could talk and discuss things and do the costumes and the look, you know, of everything. Um, so, yeah, so you can talk more about that with Adam if you want. <laughs> sure. The film is gorgeous to look at. I mean, aside from the incredible performances. And Tracy, you must have met Sebastian, the other star of the film, when you were in Hangman together, correct? Exactly, I did. And uh, he actually went on for Alfie Allen. Um, I think he got like an ear infection. Um, but, you know, just we were all being careful because there was still, it was last year when we'd finished it before, before with the COVID. Mm hmm Everybody was still testing, but not right. like five times a day like before. Yeah. So we were just all careful about illnesses and as you would be and sanitizing and stuff. So he went off for a little bit and Sebastian did a great job, I have to say. That's so great. I, that I saw when I saw Alfie was in and he was terrific, of course. You know, the whole I mean, that was just a fucking great play. Truly. <laughs> Truly my favorite of the season. I saw everything that year. Uh, the first time I've ever accomplished that. But all right, Adam, let's talk about your film. What was the inspiration behind this? What was the genesis of End of Story? You know, it's a combination of uh, ideas that I had in my mind. Um, and um, um, I started writing maybe like a year and a half ago, um, this story. And um, I kind of... Um, uh, I remember this a friend of mine he was talking about his ex-girlfriend that uh he he she had a you know multiple personalities and and he was like they already broke like they already broke up uh, but then he was he was talking about her like you know one day she's like this one day like she's like that and I didn't know I was living with a person I don't know like the next day I'm gonna wake, wake up like someone else next to me on the bed like it was it was really creepy you know, it's it's the other part of this, how I wrote the story is um, I wrote a story when I was 20 years old and it was very like a dramatic story. And since then, I felt as a writer that all these characters, they're like kind of a talking to me, telling me to like, not in a crazy way, but telling me like, come on, finish like the story in a way. It's been it's been, uh, you know, in the computer there somewhere for like years and years. And um Every time I go back to it and I write more, um, and now actually now it's a finished script now, but the idea of I'm going to combine the two of 
um, this multiple personality thing with with the character that shows shows up, uh, and I I don't want to give away much of the because it's a short film. It's hard. Like if we speak, it's hard because if you speak about something, it's like the whole film. It's like right. the whole film. So anyway, this uh, I combined the two ideas together, and um, I I kind of uh, um um connected with my screenwriter that helped me writing the first short film and he said yeah i think we have something there and then we wrote together the script uh so it was a combination of two uh actually uh one true story and i'm not talking specifics how tracy played these characters but um in a way just the idea of it was there and then i put them together and it's I was such... like, have you, got, have you got any more? Because I love to play 20. <laughs> you do yeah. such a terrific job. The the film is such a great, unique idea. And I, so I just came off of the New York City Horror Film Festival this last weekend. I actually watched 41 short films and oh, wow. nine, nine features in three days. I write for Rumorg Magazine, so I'm covering it for that. And I came out so inspired. I'm writing my own screenplay. It's my first, uh, it's a horror film. Actually, it's a horror musical. Tracy, I might have a role for you one day. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so watching your film, which is about a writer who's you know struggling to get, get things going was just so relatable to me. <laughs> Uh, and you know the importance of building character and 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 all of the self doubt. So I I very much enjoyed it, and I love the spooky horror spin on it, and I love the little nods to Edgar Allan Poe as well. It's a very. Well I, I want to give I want to give Tracy um, uh, uh, the credits for she. I mean, we had three and a half days to film this, like literally the wow. the, the people who live in the house because they couldn't leave the house. We they said if you want to use the house, we have to stay there. So we they can, we'll give you the house for three days, and I used the half day to film like the outdoor, the B-roll stuff outside. But Tracy had to do this, this let's say I'm not giving like all these characters in three days, wow. and one of and some of them were, I think two of them were in the same night, and I'm like. Tracy, are you going to be able to do this? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And it was amazing. I Obviously, I was like, I, I directed her at the beginning, telling her what to do, like, if you maybe this, maybe that. But then, you know what? I did not. I was just watching, like, mesmerized by how she was like. That's just because we were doing the pre-production and that homework is invaluable. Yeah, we did a lot of pre-production. We did a lot of pre-production, right. And that made it made it easy on us, like hundred percent. Yeah, and then I had to do my homework, obviously, and then I had to suggest <laughs> things to him if they were all right. And once I got his initial uh, core of the characters, I, I kind of expanded it in his terms. Uh, and then you go over or you go under, and you say, "Is that good? Do you want that there?" So you. You have to be quite specific on what you're in trouble with and get help from him or what he specifically wanted. So it was a good match and a, a good merge, if you like, of the two two of us. I mean, I wasn't privy to like Sebastian's thing with Adam, except when we got on set, we there was a lot of separate shots because, of course, we were playing different shots with each other. Mm -hmm. And then I had to like bond with him in another way with a different one. Um it's hard to explain because we'll give the plot away, but but uh yeah, it was it 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 was a mixture of both of us and with experience, you know that you have to work on something, then it's deep in yourself as well. Uh I loved it, I loved the process of it all and 
And we did it in three days, yeah, so that was good. We got it all in time. There was a bit of a rush towards the end because there always is, you know. Right. Um, but you just pull your socks up and you listen really hard and everybody goes quiet and you can concentrate and you're on with it and you roll with it. And then it's like, okay, cut print. And then another one, okay, cut print. You know, and you just keep going like that and you have to have the stamina for that. Um, so, so I was grateful. It was fun. It was a lot of fun yeah. watching Tracy. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. He took the bit out of me a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, and then this will lead into talking a little bit about Here We Are as well. I'm a big uh, believer that the horror genre is is so effective in storytelling because it can use things like surrealism or even absurd situations to tell a relatable story in a way that might not work in another genre, right? So without giving away anything of end of story, there is a little bit of a surreal aspect to it. Uh, what was it specifically about lending yourself to kind of a spooky vibe and a little bit of a horror feel to your story uh, that, that kind of drew you to the genre? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... If you want to make sense of the story, uh, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't make, but that's that's the point of it. That's the point of it. It is at the end. I don't know if this is going to answer your question, but it's at the end when you watch it. I'm like, so again, I don't want to give away. Like, it's just the thing about the short film. Like, uh, but then there's like, mm, who is who is writing the story? Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, that leaves you with this like big question, because. Um, Again, like, going back to Tracy, she's inside you, or just, or just the writing write itself. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Some writers say that, oh, I just held the pen and it wrote itself, and uh, you know, I would love uh, to experience that personally. Let me just say, <laughs> that's never happened to me. <laughs> I don't know if that happens for Adam, but some of my writer friends say that they yeah. just characters take over and they can't stop, and it becomes not them in the end. It, you know, in this case, it was like you know, it was like a. It was. It could have gone in so many different directions. The story, and I was like getting gathering all these ideas, and you know, so it was like multi. It was like a like a a lot of ideas coming into the story, but I had to pick and choose which one. So it's kind of a like it's definitely on a on a surrealistic, like you know, mind bend, um, you know, thing story. The story, yeah, yeah. I don't know if, it, if this answers the question, but. Yeah, yeah, it did. And it actually, it brings me into, so here we are, Sondheim's final musical before, you know, we unfortunately lost him is not a horror musical by any means, but it really goes to a place of surrealism and it gets frightening, you know, in its own way. Tracy, what can, I'll ask you two questions about it. Looking at this script and score for the first time, what was that experience like? And then how do you think these surreal aspects, particularly of the second act, lend themselves to telling the story? Yeah, I mean, it's sadly not a two-minute conversation. It's been mm. going on forever. But uh, it's had different reactions from people, first of all. So when you said to me after, oh, my God, the horror of the second act, you know, most people have not said that. Mm. Um, yes, it's European based on two European films. So if you're not privy to the Brunels of the world or, you know, that surreal Monty Python-esque-ish thing, then a lot of people have seen it and gone, I have no clue what it's on about. But because it's Sundown, I listen to the tunes and mm. that, you know. And I've said, well, you're not really listening because it's not rocket science, to be fair. You know, it's got like little subplots and all that. And it's got like, the, you know, a love story and this and, and a group of friends who all then it turns into a 
play. Mm. It's always been a play, really. Uh, and the songs are the extension of the play. You know, like sometimes brilliant art, and he loves actors for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the second half becomes... It's set in the future for one. Uh, the phones are 25. You know, you're on a 25, so it's not like 3,000 miles forward. Yeah, I caught that. Right, but it's, it's like just... 10 minutes into the future. Right. right. Uh, and, and yeah, except like five years or something. I don't sure. know. But right. it's this kind of dystopia thing. Um, and it people have said, well, it's almost like COVID and you're all stuck in this room and you can't get out. And then it's philosophizing about actually what is life about? What is the meaning of anything? And these people slowly change and become kind of themselves, but every one of them has changed a bit. They've seen a different angle of themselves who shake them up pretty badly. Like there's a, you know, a big businesswoman and she's cocksure and she turns into a crumbling wreck, you know, and and kind of they all find themselves in these strange positions that have changed them somehow. And we're not saying like Follies. Everybody came to that party at Follies and they all left differently. Mm. A lot of the only one who I played that comes in and she's happy and she leaves happy. She's happy with her life. She does tell you that story in that one big song, I'm Still Here, about the whole backdrop of America and what she's been through and the rehab she's done and the marriages that she had to get and all. You, you know, she's been every step of the way up and down and up and down and up. But ultimately, she's not this massive star that she wanted to be. She's a bubbly chorus girl who did well in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, and she's totally happy with herself. So in, in I'm saying that for a reason because... It's not the same, but it's similar in terms of this group who come together for the lunches that they're going on, which they never find the food, you know, and that's surreal itself because all these characters are me and Dennis O'Hare that that are kind of slowly taking the mickey out of the bourgeois and the rich. Mm. It's like they're almost cleverer than they are and they're, they're sadder sometimes, but they're just real but surreal in their own way. You know, it's either we're taking the mickey or or when we're saying nothing and just observing or eye-rolling or something. So when they get to this house at the end, they'll go for, you know, instead of restaurants, and there's a revolution going on, so the bombs are kicking off. So everybody was going, oh, my God, Israel, you know, and it's always been going on. Mm. Obviously, new and everybody knows. And it, it goes into a lot of places that Sondheim has obviously been thinking about and David Ives and he and Joe worked together on it. So back to your question on the first day, you know, Joe had rang me up and A told me I'd got it and B told a little of these characters, but he said he was a collaborative person. So he had a viewpoint in his eye and in his mind, but he was like asking us, what do we think to bring ourselves to these characters? And, you know, sometimes I hate in the programmes when somebody writes, oh, I created this. But it's like, no, it's the writers that created it. Mm. That's absolutely true for me. Without writers, we are nothing. And everybody knows that. And I say it really strongly. Without writers, there's nothing, which is why I was upset at SAG and, you know, all that stuff that they're undermining them. And 
because everything stops without a writer. So anyway, they collaborated, first of all, for many years, many years, and then Sundown was doing other things, and then Joe Mantello kind of, you know, he said he pulled them all in again, and they discussed, and Sundown gave them permission to move it forward, and then, you know, we know he slowly passed, well, quickly overnight passed, and and so we were left with the responsibility in our minds of, oh, God, do you want us to create it all or do you, do you want to follow us? You So that was talked about again and then we started with the score uh, and then we worked seriously, intensely, more intensely than I've ever done anything. Wow. Um, almost like Adam's film because that was intense because I was playing different people. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm playing different people here. So I'm not one of the leads, but me and Dennis are... Well, half of it, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and so so we had to work really hard at our characterizations because, you know, there's a Polish one, there's an Irish one, there's an American one, there's a, uh, a mother of one, you know, they, they're all weird. Um, and so we, was, we were frightened, but at the same time, you know, I've never thought I'm anything, you know, I'm, I'm, I just carry on working and, and I'm grateful and I skip to work. But for the first time, it was like, sit yourself down. This is serious now. It's the last one. It's history making, whether it works for people or not. Joe Montello wasn't wanting it to go anywhere else. He said, this is for Steve. This is to show the last piece of work, almost like a gallery of his last piece as a tribute to him. And if it goes anywhere else, he he wasn't he wasn't kind of interested, and we weren't interested because of that. It was just an ode to him and this last piece of work. Absolutely. So people love it or they might hate it. I don't know. It's not my place. We just execute it, and so the seriousness for our work ethic too. We were booked because of that. Our brains, you know, for each different part, the younger one and the this one and that. We were booked and picked, and we've been told which I couldn't deal with at first because I'm like, no, you tell me what to do, you know. Mm. But but we really had to put our weight in. Yeah. And uh, just, for me, come to terms with the gravitas that somebody thinks I might have. So I sat down and it was like, I'm not going to skate over this anymore. This, <laughs> this is what I've worked for, to be a part of this ultra, ultra from the beginning totally create and every day it changed every day we had to go back and rethink and rethink mm. and then rethink again and then add on what we liked and process of elimination it was so difficult and and like i said intense but and brilliant and scary and and like what do you mean by that i can't do it what do you mean you know okay we'll have to give you another option quick it was all the things you think about but you never come across yeah uh, and then to add the songs to that and be very particular with the diction or the accent or that, like I had to calm my accents down mm. because they can be of an ilk where people go, what the, what's she saying? What? So you have to do a version for America, if you don't mind me saying. Isn't that what happened with Hangman? Didn't you all have to tone down your accents in that play? Well, we kind of did. Yeah. But they were adamant that we shouldn't because it's sure. like, if we can't keep up, it's not our fault. Right. <laughs> but we did clarify and then went faster and faster and faster until it was too fast. Right. Because it yeah. is fast how we speak. Mm. Uh, and then we compromised because we got it out of our systems and they were like, what? <laughs> right. 
it was right like, you know, 65 accent like that. And if you put it quick like that, it goes again. And the Americans were like, I can't understand what you're saying at all. Right, right. So we'd yeah. have to stage diction it a bit mm. and go, sure. what do you mean by that? But but like, you know, keep the confidence that it's from a particular area. And if you were doing like deep south, you'd come over and do proper deep south and it's up to us whether we can do it or not. So you exactly. have to you have to have that stage etiquette really and the stage technique, you know. So no, it sounds no. like it is, but if you put it on where it's actually from, they'd be like, you're going a bit slow. Sure. Well, you are a master of it. I saw Here We Are a couple of weeks ago with some friends and, and just absolutely loved it. It's it like you said, a historical moment. Actually, um, the uh, producer, Tom Kierdehy, has been on my podcast. Uh, he oh, produced he produced Grey House. And so I was invited to do a post-show discussion with the audience alongside him. Became a bonus episode. It's actually one of my most listened to episodes on the show. And that show was also directed by Joe Mantello. So it's a I went, I saw it. small Broadway world, mine. you know? I know, right? And a friend of mine produced it also. And uh, so she um, she said to go see, and I was going to go anyway. And uh, I, I just absolutely loved it. It, it. it was weird, wasn't it? And freaky and the weird. kids. I was like, how did you wreck those kids? scary and yeah it was it was a very effective horror play on broadway and i it's what i love to see it, it got me like kind of going in my niche for writing for horror on stage uh right. for rue morgue and so i'm really grateful they really kind of gave me some cred there but, yeah well, you know i'm thinking adam might want to write a broadway play soon <laughs> adam should do it adam should absolutely well, do it well we might we're thinking to to turn uh, in the story to, into into a show and plus i'm writing right now i'm extending it to a feature film so that's what we're doing we're like jumping ahead uh, uh of time but that's, but that's what we're doing now yeah well why don't we uh where can my listeners look out i know the film is not completely set and finished yet but where can they keep an eye out for it when do you think that they'll uh, be able to see it so the only the only thing we have now is the instagram page a uh, few of, i'm sorry end of story short film you're still in uh, production aren't you i'm sorry it's still in post-production yeah so today i finalized it with the with the composer uh and then uh the editor is working um on finalizing you know the final touches so it should be it should be done within like a week or 10 days and then i'm gonna you know submit it to festivals and uh you know see how it goes uh, but uh, yeah i mean the best thing uh, the uh, end of story short film very good. We'll, and um, we'll we'll have that in the show yeah. notes as well. I can't wait to see the final product. This um, version Thank that you. you sent me, even with the temp score, and it, it, it's gorgeous and very well yeah. done. And so I really can't wait to see the final product. And Thank I, congratulations. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, hey, we gathered here to discuss a wildly famous and influential horror film. What do you say we get into it? Let's go trick-or-treating. Let's do it. Today we are discussing 1976's The Omen. It's directed by Richard Donner, who would go on to direct Superman and Lethal Weapon and The Goonies. Uh, written, <laughs> yeah, I know, written by uh, David Seltzer. Now he also wrote the screenplay for the 2006 remake that starred Julia Stiles and Lev Schreiber. 
uh, the remake was not a big hit. It was people said it was too similar, like almost a word. I for never word. saw that one actually. You know, there was brilliant casting because the 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 evil nanny, Mrs. Baylock, was Mia Farrow. And oh. I thought it was so inspired because she had been Rosemary in Rosemary's Baby, right? Oh, excellent. Uh, and I but, believe the um the young kid, Damien, he was in it. In he one, did. Yeah, right. Yeah, he played like a new a news reporter, I think. He had a little cameo. I mean, yeah. how was that? Uh, and and so the 2006 remake, I didn't dislike it. It just didn't really add anything to, you know, yeah. to the story. Uh, now, I want to take a second and talk about the score. Because Jerry oh, Goldsmith. Oscar winning score. He won a fucking Oscar for this score. Right? He almost didn't go to the ceremony. Amazing. He had been nominated before and lost several times. And he was like, I can't do this again. But uh, <laughs> the director convinced him to go and he won. It's a big deal. It was a big deal. I mean, that honestly, even now, I, you know, I, I remember, oh, it's awful. And my singing teacher from my college, when I was 16 to 20 or whatever it was, uh, sang on the score. No kidding. Well, it's scary as hell. It sounds like it's straight out of hell. So it won score, and then the song, Ave Satini, was nominated for Best Song, which is bizarre because a choral piece, I don't think, has ever probably been nominated. <laughs> For best song uh and this is the only horror score that has ever won for best score which is, is just really yeah, yeah yeah now i would love to ask, ask both of you let's start with adam what is your relationship to the omen when was the first time that you saw this film um i saw the film i'll probably um maybe like 15 years ago but then i watched it again because i knew we were talking about it a couple of days ago and i gotta tell you it's it's probably the best horror film ever wow like it's, I think, I think it's because you know what? It's not a jump scare. Like it's, it, it, like it's not like one of these new films you, like they make you jump every second and screaming and this. It's very subtle, and the music uh, we were just talking about it. It's, it's the, it's the, it's what makes the film because yeah. it's so creepy and it's goes, it flows with the, with the, with the, you know, with the scenes, with the imagery. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I watched a couple of days ago and I think it was as good as, you know, as ever. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and, and I have, I have to say, like, I think because it's so good, uh, it's what happened is when you watch a film, any film, horror, any horror film, you always compare it to these old ones and, and these old ones end up always winning because it's such yeah. a, such an amazing, amazing, amazing films that. Uh, you watch it again and again and again. It's always like there's always something in it, something new. Oh, it's always scary. It's always, although you watch it so many times, it's always scary. Yeah. Yeah. There's a timelessness to it. It, it lasts. Yeah. Tracy, what about you? What is your relationship to this film? Oh you were God. the one who suggested we do we talk about it. Yeah, well, you know, out of a list, you know, Rosemary's Baby. I mean, absolutely brilliant film. I mean, I love that. The Exorcist, I've never caught on with it. I knew it was hype at the time and I was so young and everybody was fainting and I'm like, oh, don't be ridiculous. And by the time I seen it, I'm like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, it was that over. And I even knew about the special effects. That, not because I do what I do, because I didn't. I was a teenager. Mm. But I just didn't get the falling about. And maybe that was propaganda for the film. So I missed all the hype and didn't bother about it. So, yeah, I just... It didn't scare. I mean, it's scary, but it. The Omen was the first one for me 
that I could relate to as a human being because it was just the prophecies of the Bible, the revelations. And I'd seen a documentary when they put it in parallel terms of like 21st century, you know. Um, And that was a scary documentary uh, about how the the hailstones would fall from the heavens and then they put like bombs from the war and, you know, they made it. So so I I grew up with a lot of religious education. and you question it as a kid, even. Mm-hmm. So what's this God and what what's who are the three people and what's Mary got to do with them? What yeah, but where did she get pregnant? Why was it, you know, you question it. My mother, she was like, oh. So she gave us a good thing. And I, I was very curious at the time. And my sister actually like studied at school with it all. So anyway, aside from all that, you know, the priest in my day would be Saturday afternoon and you spent some Tracy helping poor kids, and it would be like, oh, a feel-good movie and or like bloody Bing Crosby or something dressed as a priest and it would all be like, yeah. But these priests, I mean, the exorcist and Rosemary's baby did put the way forward for these kind of things in contemporary settings. But when the priest didn't even scare me really in the exorcist, but they did. They were trying to warn him, you know, Mm. and the opening credits with, it, it, I was freaked out because it felt real like it could happen in my little teenage mind at the time. You know, it, I thought this could happen because it's the sea of politics and it's, and you know, it's like the, the babies were swapped and what's that, what's with the nanny hanging herself and what, and who's Billy Whitelaw? And she, you know, we knew Billy Whitelaw because she was a northerner like kind of thing. And, and we loved her and she all did this Brechtian thing and, but she played it like nurse with a smile. Nurse Ratchet was horrible. Yeah. But but she, apparently it was cast as an elusive Irish woman. It was a bit like that, she couldn't be bothered. But Billy was clever enough to smile and everything's good. This calm sereneness, which is hell and the gates of it with the apostles. You Menacing. know, that's yeah. right? So it's totally between the good and evil. And I was so into that at the time. It freaked me out, like with all the pictures, with all the markings, how they were going to die. And Dave, he, he was brilliant, Dave. You know that photographer, and 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 there were lots of behind the scenes things that were going on, um, like Gregory Peck. You know, his son committed suicide before yes. he filmed it. Yeah. So when you look at it, you're like, oh my god, what are you thinking? And his agent said to him, oh, you know, go and do it; it'll be good for you. But it's like it really wasn't. <laughs> No, because he was fresh off of the suicide of his son. Some people say that he made this choice to um, work his way through the grief. But I mean, what a bizarre script to work your way through grief with, you know? I mean, he he was brilliant. And I've always loved him anyway. He's like a great ambassador for actors. Especially that last scene. Oh, Especially yeah. the last scene, yeah. like Daddy, like, he's like begging him. It's like, oh my god! It yeah, knowing daddy, knowing what he's been daddy. through. Yeah. Gets, please, Daddy. Oh yes, please, Daddy. Please, yeah. daddy, don't, Daddy. And you're like, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> this film oh, is so god. interesting to me. The first time I saw it, I was a very small child, maybe too young to have seen it. I watched it with my mom. She was a big fan of it. I too grew up in a very religious home. And I, so the book of revelation was terrifying to me. And, you know, I had seen documentaries as well that compared 
my church would always preach that it now is the end of times that now are the end days and and that you know this could happen at any given moment and so this movie had me absolutely convinced <laughs> that the antichrist had already been born sometime in the 70s and was, you know uh-huh. going to ascend to power any day now uh the uh, director specifically made a request of the screenwriter to remove any supernatural elements no cloven hoofed demons no satanic cult what? rituals he wanted it to lay in a world of realism so that these mysterious killings could have been accidents or they could have been the work oh, of the devil. That, exactly. And it's very and effective. That's what freaked me out because like even in, you know, mm-hmm. when that priest warns him yeah. to, to go to this place and get the knives kind of thing, not in so many words, but it, he ran through that park and you just, you just go in, oh, it's on you. They've got yeah. you. The trees are burning. The gates are burning. The lightning's coming in. And there it is. You know, and you're like, oh, it, and they, the cast were just so real. And Lee Demick, when she, Lee Remick, when she's trying to take her thingy off and the veil over it, yeah. looking like Mary. Sure. Absolutely. I noticed that last night. Yeah, I hadn't, I'd never picked up on that before. Oh, God, yeah. And, and suddenly Billy Whitelaw's like that, smiling, and you're going, oh, you evil bitch, and sharing off his other oh, horrible <laughs> death, the nasty, the glass and everything that, you know, he'd seen in his photographs, this guy who'd seen yeah. it. Yeah. Just I, so well done. And it, you know what about the music? It's when they don't play the music. Mm. It's a section when there's no music. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why is there no music? And then yeah. you all go, I'm hearing the noises of the house now. I'm really terrified. And then suddenly, you know, the, the music comes in or whatever it is. And, and there's the dog in the basement, you know. Oh my God, the dog. So, so I love this era for horror. I love 70s horror. We are post kind of 1960s peace and love. Um, there's this uh, right. po- post Vietnam cynicism and fear. And this is kind of, you know, Charles Manson. And like you said, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, there was this real interest in satanic uh, practices. And it show- it's showcased in cinema in this time. I always what think of the movie Race thing? with the Devil. Did you ever see Race with the Devil oh, with Peter God, Fonda? Yes, I yes. love that movie. But so that was such a big thing at this time. And the only. Why though? Why was it suddenly a genre? I know you're saying that in the backdrop of after Vietnam and all that and the flower power. What made it be that way? What was happening politically? I can't remember offhand. It was pre-Reagan. I think this was also a time when people were very first starting to doubt religion or at least question religion right? right publicly. I believe it was People Magazine ha- had a famous cover, something like, Is God Dead? Something like that. And it really oh. freaked people out and upset them. This was just when a was time Man- when America didn't feel like they believed in anything. Right? There was Manson lot and all that cult uh, thing. When, that when was you... I don't remember the exact year. It was early seventies, I though. Right. Um, so it was all it was all going mad serial killers and cults as well, and yeah. that started a good and evil thing going on because these people were just mad, and yeah. like evil, you know, to 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 send people out like hypnotized almost, brainwashed. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're crazy people, and people were listening to them in droves. Yeah. Now I do want to, you brought up kind of the coincidental spooky things that were happening there. People call this film cursed and it's unconfirmed if this was a PR stunt or if these events really happened, but the people, there are people who believed that the devil didn't want this film to be made. Gregory Peck's plane and David Seltzer's planes were struck by lightning on their way to shoot in England. Uh, There were car crashes. There were bombings from the IRA all around the shoot. 
Um, a chartered plane that they rented hit a block, a uh, flock of birds and crashed on the runway and it killed the wife and two children. I can't go on that one. Yeah. So I'll get the next one. And he would have been dead now. Can you imagine? Yeah. It's uh, the, the, all of these strange happenings. There was a, um, the special effects supervisor was also working on a bridge too far, was in a car accident and his girlfriend was beheaded. Now he had to design the beheading scene in oh. this film. And allegedly, oh, the wow. crash allegedly the, the crash happened at the sixty six point six kilometer oh, marker on the highway. Stop it! Oh wow! What about that other crash with one of the crew, and he, the passenger was killed? Yeah, and he looked up and it was Omen with the double M. Yeah, the town of Omen, Omen, but with double M. How it's, weird is that? It's not all confirmed, oh. but you know, the same thing happened with the exorcist saying that, that, you know, that there were all these cursed events happening and was it PR? I don't know. Well, it was I, after though. It, they didn't need it. They, they yeah. were already successful. So I don't believe that they were just propaganda. It had made 60 billion or something. The omen and the exorcist had made a lot. But there was no reason to give it a bunch up. You know what I mean? Yeah. There were too many things. And I don't think Gregory Peck's a liar anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, these things don't happen on just any set. The The role of Robert Thorne that Gregory Peck took was originally offered to Charlton Heston, Roy Scheider, and William Holden, and Dick Van Dyke, who later admitted that turning it down was a stupid mistake. But I can't picture <laughs> I can't picture anyone but Gregory uh, Peck in this role. I know, that's right, when once you see them. But didn't William Holden do a prequel or something? A sequel? I think he's in two. He's in two. Damien the Omen 2, yeah. Uh, playing Richard oh, Thorne. Take over from being Damien and the adult of it. Right, yeah. What, what film was that, number four or something? Uh, that was three, um, The Final Conflict, and that was Sam Neill who played old, adult Damien. Oh, no, brilliant. Yeah, I, I love Sam Neill. He's terrific. Three is very good. Four was made for TV, and you can skip it. Don't waste your time. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, why don't we uh, get into the plot of this film and uh, and discuss it? Uh, all right, so it starts, uh, we get a, a little text scroll that says, Rome, June 6th, 6 a.m. Uh, an American diplomat named Robert Thorne, played by Gregory Peck, arrives at a hospital in Rome, and he has been told that his newborn child is dead. Now, he doesn't know how to tell his wife. A priest called Father Spoleto suggests adoption, but Robert says, no, Mrs. Thorne always wanted her own baby. Uh, the priest suggests taking a newborn whose mother had died at the same time that Thorne's baby had died and insists, you know, your wife will never know. It would be a blessing for her, a blessing for the child. Robert reluctantly agrees to it and brings the baby to his wife. And she has no idea of this exchange or that her own baby had died. And it's a really upsetting beginning to a film because we're starting with this dishonesty and, and, you know, Robert makes this reluctant choice that will absolutely come back to haunt him. <laughs> It were. Uh, we cut to a few years later. Damien is around three years old, I think. And Robert has now been appointed ambassador to Great Britain. And the family moves from Rome to just outside of London in this massive, gorgeous mansion. I love that house, did you? Oh, my God. I was, books him. I was like, oh, I want to live there. Yeah. with a, with a The house that was evil. The evil came. It, it, it's it's it after this film it became a retirement home and now it has be turned back into a private residence again um has it yeah i know maybe uh swoop in and pick that one up i don't know oh i want to know about that yeah 
Uh, now it's revealed that Robert has ambitions of becoming president of the United States and uh, the family is just very happy in their home. Uh, when With Robert, say that again? With the nanny. All right, so we get, speaking of the nanny, we get a photo montage to the tune of happy birthday to you. And it brings us to Damien's fifth birthday party in the backyard of their mansion. There's kids and photographers, clowns and a carousel and cake everywhere. And uh, Damien's nanny, Holly, has a bizarre little eye-to-eye interaction with a, a random Rottweiler that's hanging, <laughs> hanging out nearby. And this this hellhound will reappear. But after that, she the nanny goes to the rooftop of this gorgeous home and calls for everyone's attention. Uh, and she's, she has a noose around her neck and she beckons Damien to look up at her. Look at me, Damien. I love you, Damien. It's all for you. Before leaping off and hanging herself, she crash- crashes into a window below. And, so what uh, do you think, you know, what do you think that, what was all for her? Because I tell you what about the omen, there's hardly any padding to it. And that's no. why I like it. You know, films go on and on. You're like, you could cut that scene, cut, cut, cut. If there's no padding. Yeah. But I'm like, Okay, what's your story? I mean, in real life, she was Jack Palance's sister, wasn't she? And I used to love Jack Palance. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, in 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 real life, but um, so I did it all for you. That's not explained at all, is it? So is it just the, to show the first inkling of has he gotten to her? What is he mm. doing to her that makes her do that? Is it the devil coming to her saying kill you? Yeah, I think. I think I think it's just because uh, they sh- they need to make a way for the new nanny to come, so they like you know they kind of like killed her in a way, right? I mean that's what I understood. Yeah. And- it, yeah. So they wanted that specific devil devilish nanny to help him, the one who came later. Yeah, but they didn't. So I think they all make first nanny at all, did they? It, they didn't have any scenes with her before the fifth birthday, so she was obviously there from be from naught to being five or. That's just one thing, and I'm like, I get that it's not explained, and I get it's for opening the way to Billy Whitelaw's character, but it it was just a bit like she she looked mad, yeah. Till until you knew it was probably Damien doing it. So I, in my mind, I'm like, well, what did Damien do to her? You know, I think it stems from she locks eyes with that Rottweiler, and that's where she's she her eyes change. There's a change in her expression. Um, and so you the know, devil's you... talking to her through the Rottweiler. I think so. Yeah, that, they call them the devil dog, and it's a shame because apparently on set that dog was the friendliest dog that's ever been known to. I know. read that. Just wanted to <laughs> lick people and be pet. Yeah, wagging its tail. <laughs> <laughs> so they get a bad rap now because of a you know a, the Omen film. Right. Yeah. For sure. Uh, now Damien sees the Rottweiler after the hanging and smirks and waves at it, and the Rottweiler just walks away. Next day. Robert uh, is avoiding journalists on his way into work. One of these journalists is a man named Keith Dennings, played by the one and only David Warner, uh, who had been at the birthday party. A priest named Father Brennan visits Robert at work and tells him that he hasn't much time and that he must accept Christ as his savior and says he killed once, he will kill again. He says he's going to take everything from you. He reveals that he was at the hospital the night his son was born. He witnessed the birth. And uh, he screams, I saw its mother. Its mother was a jack before he gets escorted out of the building. Uh, So referring to Damien as it and inferring that its mother was perhaps not human. 
That's we, right. We don't hear the rest of that word. Cackle. Yes, for sure. Uh, Jennings notices him it's like leaving. Rosemary's baby, right? Say that again. It's like a Rosemary's baby thing. Well, yeah, because there's, you know, she is assaulted or raped by the beast in that film uh, mm. and impregnated. Now, uh, Jennings, the journalist, takes a photograph of Father Brennan before he leaves. And then when he develops the picture, he notices a strange line shape going over Brennan's figure in the picture. And it has appeared on several photographs that he's taken of Father Brennan. Uh, Robert returns home. And he's met by Mrs. Baylock, who works, she says she works for the nanny company. She's to be the new governess. And she insists that she's here to take away their troubles and anxieties. She insists she wants to be left alone with Damien at first to get to know each other. And while Catherine insists that Damien is shy at first, Mrs. Baylock says she he won't be shy with her. Robert <laughs> suggests that they allow it. And no, he is not shy with her. <laughs> yeah. She's protecting him, right? Very much so. When she enters the nursery, uh, Damien's coloring in front of the fireplace. It's a great shot of a raging fire behind him. And uh, she tells him, have no fear, little one. I am here to protect thee. And we know Ooh. that she is evil as fuck. <laughs> and must be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shortly after, Catherine and Robert are leaving for church. Mrs. Baylock, the nanny, insists that Damien would cause a fuss. Don't bring him to church. He's too young. He would never understand the goings-on of an Episcopal wedding. But Catherine, irritated, tells her to have her son dressed and brought to the car. As they pull into the church, Damien begins to appear scared, uh, trembling, and he crawls into his mother's arms. He's horrified, looking at the angels and saints and the steeple of the church. And then when it's time to get out of the car, he has a fucking conniption fit and starts hitting his mother and pulling her hair and scratching at her eyes to the point that they have to just drive away. This was the boy's audition process. The director said, come at me as hard as you can. And the kid did. And that's what got him the role. But you know that scene you're talking about there? And there's another one with the baboons, isn't there? Yeah. At the church, the director kept shouting at him. Yeah. And the kid got upset. And I'm thinking in real life, why is he shouting at him like that and making the pick? Because that's a kid. Yeah. So if you have to d direct a kid that way, what's he doing? Right. No, it would never happen today. It was ever, such a, ever, ever. Such a, not, a, a. Even then, it shouldn't have happened. No, of course not. Because I've always thought about, you know, even when I was going to be an actor or whatever, I've always thought and watched films going, oh, did, did that animal get hurt? Or just instinctively? Or. Right. How did that kid cry like that? Was somebody scaring it behind yeah. it? You know, she or he behind the camera, and and this one really was. He was scaring him, and the director of uh, The Shining did the same to um, <coughs> to the woman in that. Oh Shelley, yeah, yeah, that's Shelley right, Duvall. That. Yeah, she was severely abused on the set of that film. Severely abused. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, that night, Robert and Catherine have a discussion that he kind of exclaims, well, you know, he's never been sick a day in his life. Don't you think that's odd? And Catherine insists, no, he's just a good boy. Like he's, a, you know, we love our kid. Uh, Robert, before bed, approaches the nursery and he's met by a growling Rottweiler outside the door. Mrs. Baylock tells him that they found the dog outside. They could use a good watchdog. And Damien loves him. He'll be great for Robert's long trips away. She's putting a little bit of guilt on him for you know, him going away for work. Um, and he know I think he picks up on that, you know, he insists, get rid of the dog, call the RSPCA. You know, we we're not having this dog in our house. 
Now, let's talk about this baboon scene because this is ingrained in my mind from childhood. I remember being terrified of this scene. Catherine takes Damien to a zoo and uh, the animals react in fear to him. A herd of giraffes runs away from him and uh, they they go into this drive-through um, primate exhibit. Have you ever done one of these drive-through yeah. animal? Oh my God. You don't know fear until an ostrich has reached its head into your car, pecking for little like food that you have. Oh Why my God. Why were your windows open? Because we were feeding them. They gave us food to feed the ostrich. Oh, <laughs> that's wrong. So scary. <laughs> so bad. My dad would have flung that window open, I mean, closed, and said, get inside. Oh, so scary. So scary. Now, while they're at the zoo, Robert is leaving for work, and he notices that Father Brennan is outside the gate of their house. Back at the primate exhibit, the baboons become aggressive at the sight of Damien, and he smiles about it until they start attacking the car, and then he starts screaming and jumps into his mother's arms, and Catherine is freaking the hell out and begins to scream and she just drives off and baboons fly off of her car and probably an instance where animals might not have been taken care of as well as they could have. Well, do you know what they did? Tell me. They drugged one of the lead um, male ones and it couldn't move. Oh my God. Put it in the back of the car what they kept them not eating the night before oh my god so by the time the next day filming came and she's driving with the drugged baboon at the back with the kid and, and few bananas inside inside the car right <laughs> <laughs> all, all the food on top of the car and she literally, I mean, what was the actress thinking as well I'd have been like no are you I was just going to ask if you would do this <laughs> Um, tricky. I wouldn't let a baboon be drugged just for a movie anyway. No, of course not. So so they all came running on the car, innocently worried about the baboon, the king baboon in the back, mm. and wanting to help, and then eating all the food at this. Can you imagine the craziness? No. And that's why she was really screaming. And I say, any director who does things like this on, on top of one another, yeah. you're like... You, that's not directing to me. Mm. That, that's, that's abusing everything. And now it's, it would all be CGI. It's, it's just common sense. Yeah, true. yeah. yeah. Would never happen these days. No, it's all CGI. You can't really work with monkeys or primates or, or anything anymore uh, the way that you used to on set, to my understanding. I mean, I'm used to oh, yeah. open their mouths like that. I mean, right. they're, I mean, they're vicious. They're scary. No, she was screaming. And I mean, God love her. Yeah, now, it was that, a great scene, though. It's it was a, a great scene. Very impactful. Again, I remember it so vividly from my childhood, being just terrified. What a scary instance! Almost like Cujo, right? You're trapped in a car and being attacked by these by vicious right. creatures. Yeah. And these these are life lasting terrors in your mind, you know. Yeah, because yeah. that could happen. Formative, or a form of that. And they've um, rocked the car over since in these places. You know, it's just, it, they're just terrifying places. And that's what I mean. It was like, oh my God, I just went to a zoo when I was young when I watched it, you know? Yeah. Well, this movie has some really great set pieces throughout. I think it does a great job of of having impactful moments uh, filled with, you know, it spaced between really great story development. 
Uh, that night, Catherine and Robert lay in bed discussing whether there's something wrong with their kid. And Catherine insists she wants to see a psychiatrist, uh, that she has such fears. And if she told him what kind, he'd put her away. Robert agrees to help her find a doctor. And he tells her that he loves her. It's very clear that they do have a good relationship with one another. And I appreciate that about this film because mm. it makes it all the more heartbreaking mm. as, the, as the story goes on. Uh, Robert attends a rugby game where Jennings, that journalist, can be seen taking pictures. Robert is approached by Father Brennan, who insists that they meet in Bishop's Park. If he'll just give him five minutes, he'll never see him again. He says his wife is in danger and she'll die unless he comes. Now, as he walks away, Jennings takes one more picture of him. And when he develops it, he sees that uh, strange straight line appearing across his figure diagonally, just like before. Robert does meet Father Brennan in the park and Father Brennan is he's incoherent. He's very, you know, kind of upset and he mutters what is passed off as a Bible verse. Now this was not, it's nowhere in the Bible. This was written by the screenwriter. It's a poem. Um, I'll read it once. It's repeated several times, but I'll read it just now. When the Jews return to Zion and the comet rips the sky and the Holy Roman empire rises, then you and I must die from the eternal sea. He rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother till man exists no more. People left this movie thinking that this was actually in the Bible. Uh, they also left thinking that Damien, the name is in the Bible, and neither of neither of them appear whatsoever. Isn't it? Isn't it an amalgamation though of lines from Revelations? So Revelation does talk about the Holy Roman Empire implying rising in politics. Later, uh, I believe it's Revelation. There is a line, uh, a verse about rising from the, a beast rising from the sea. So yeah, it's it's kind of a combination of things. Uh, formed so that these characters can interpret it to progress the plot of the film. It's it's a clever device, I think, I, although nothing in the Bible rhymes. So I think I find that distracting personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after speaking of the book of Revelation, he tells him to go to the town of Megiddo in the old city of Jezreel to see an old man, Bugenhagen, who alone can describe how the child must die. He tells Robert that Catherine is pregnant and that the son of the devil will never allow the child to be born. He will kill the child, then his wife. Then when he's certain he will be the sole inheritor, he will kill Robert. And Robert tells him, I never want to fucking see you again. Leave my family alone. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. Uh, suddenly, when Robert leaves, a strange and heavy wind begins to blow. Tracy, just like you mentioned before, there's lightning striking a tree branch. There's fire. Brennan starts running to a church for sanctuary uh climbs a locked gate that is then struck by lightning it's a really great scene i think it, it starts they to all get... are, aren't they? They, they, they've all got like your your genre things like mm -hmm. specific little acts amalgamated together stuck together you know what i mean sure absolutely everyone's yeah. like a picture perfect horrible build-up to it uh, and that's when, why I think it's brilliantly directed because it's it doesn't look like it's pieced together as he's done a storyboard, but it but it is right. Look, like most films, anyway. But go on. He bangs on the doors to the church, and there's no answer. And suddenly, a lightning rod, a metal rod from the top of the church, is struck by lightning, falls down, and impales him while he's standing up. It's such an impactful kill. It's so iconic and. So cool. uh, disturbing you know the camera lingers on this him he's just standing there impaled it's time to warn him you know what i mean yeah he's killed yeah. by his own goodness it happens so fast so mm. fast now 
Catherine reveals to Robert that she doesn't ever want to have any more children and that she wants an abortion. She's found out that she's pregnant and she does not want to keep the baby. The phone rings and Robert is told to look at the newspaper from an unknown caller. When he looks, he sees a photograph of Father Brennan's body impaled by the lightning rod. This takes me out of the picture because never in a million years would they put a picture of someone's impaled body on the I know, right. newspaper. Uh, but it works. Now, Catherine's psychologist explains to Robert that she's having fantasies that their child is an alien or that he's evil. And she also thinks that the child isn't hers. I think it's interesting from a storytelling perspective that she is not allowed to say these things herself. It is a man who is explaining it about her. Yeah, it's straight away, I thought, yeah. This yeah. is the 70s, right? Because when 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 they said, oh, he's pulling the Gregory Peck in to talk, I'm like, that's a breach of, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. If you have therapy, HIPAA but, violation right there. <laughs> but I'm wondering if, like, you know, political people have like immunity to all that. I just didn't know, but I found it strange even at the time because I knew the doctors couldn't say anything or lawyers or all that. You know, you maybe can't... because they're married, there may have been some sort of agreement. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, Robert refuses to agree, agree to an abortion. Uh, he says it was foretold that this pregnancy would be terminated and he's going to fight to see that it's not. And he leaves the doctors urgently. As he's driving home, we okay. see it cut together with shots of Damien driving around the house on a tricycle. And Mrs. Baylock looks on and Catherine is doing some housework. She's standing on a chair watering some houseplants, some hanging houseplants. And uh, there's a little balcony that looks over the first floor of the house. And she's kind of next to this balcony. We see it coming. Mrs. Baylock opens the door to the nursery. Damien is let out on the tricycle and he bumps into Catherine who's standing on the chair. She falls to the first floor. Uh, well, first she's hanging onto the ledge while Damien watches and does nothing. And then she falls to the first floor. Uh, and bleeds from the mouth. This shot is done really interestingly to me. So the actress had heard that Ellen Burstyn was severely injured making The Exorcist during the scene where she gets thrown across the room. She didn't want to film this falling scene. So they created a vertical set of what the floor of the house looks like. And on a dolly, they just lowered or moved her back toward it. But it looks like you're looking down at her falling. Brilliant. Yeah, really yeah, brilliant. Uh, um, these little special effects, you know, that were innovative at the time. Yes. Um, which weren't like spectacularly like, you know, Jurassic Park later, but it, but they were good for the time, you know? Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. A very clever way to do it. It looks great. And it, it has a little bit of like an ethereal look to it, an unnatural yeah. way of moving, which I think actually adds to the sequence. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, and then she... She just turns around, don't she? I mean, she yep. would have been dead in real life. She turns like, yeah, to the like the side. I was like, how did they film this? And I yeah. thought she's a little bit stiff, but yeah. now you explained it. Now it makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, oh, she was right to do it because of the backstory. But I mean, that that they do fly her over the over the to the wall, don't they? In The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. She Ooh, she still has a spinal injury to this day from it. Ellen Burstyn does. Um, now, Robert arrives at the hospital in a cloud of paparazzi, and he's told that Catherine is going to recover, but she has a concussion, a few broken ribs, and has some internal bleeding. Catherine wakes up and tells Robert, don't let him kill me. Uh, and he gets a phone call from Jennings, who uh, asks uh, if he can discuss the death of the priest. Now, 
Jennings shows Robert the picture that he took at Damien's birthday party of the nanny who hung herself and the, the shadow of a noose can be seen. Uh, he also shows him pictures of Father Brennan before he died. And we see that straight line slash through him. And then it's kind of realized, oh my God, this is how he was impaled. These pictures are predicting people's deaths. Uh, vile. That's a vile thought, isn't it? Extremely. Now, they external uh, upon doing a autopsy of Father Brennan, uh, they found a small mark on his right thigh, three sixes, the number 666. It was a birthmark. Horrible. Oh, yeah, they, what was he doing on his thigh? I, I have troubles with this, that this these birthmarks are like kind of Western numerical figures of 666 when this was predicted back when our number system oh. didn't exist. But I'm not going to ask too many questions. Right, right. Uh, they discovered that the priest had been studying astrology and that the six years, uh, five years ago, the star of Bethlehem had appeared on the opposite side of the planet. And then they kind of do the math and realize June 6th at 6 a.m. when Damien was born is the sixth day of the sixth month, the sixth hour of that day. So the number is 666. Uh, Robert confesses that his real son is dead. They don't know whose son he's raising. And um, Jennings says, let's try to figure this out. I'm going to help you. Uh, and he says, I'm going to help you figure it out because, and he shows him a picture that he took of himself and there's a sharp line cutting across his neck, implying he is next, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Mrs. Baylock tells Robert that the rest of the house's staff has up and left, leaving behind an address where they can be sent their last mm -hmm. month's, wa month's wages. Uh, and she tells him that the dog has been taken care of. Robert and Jennings go to Rome and discover that the hospital where Damien was born burned down in a terrible fire five years ago. The fire started in the Hall of Records leading up to the third floor. There are no more records of anyone who was born there. Uh, but the head, the former head priest, Father Spoleto, survived and now lives in a monastery. So this is the man that gave Robert the baby. All right. Yes, that's right. Uh, they do some... must have known. Right. Oh, he absolutely knew what he was doing. He, uh, in fact, comments that he has fallen from grace. Uh, they do some math on that poem that was recited and discover that, um, you know, the 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 Antichrist, the father, the son of Satan will rise up in politics. So it's all starting to make sense to them. Mm -hmm. Now, the men find Father Spoleto at the monastery, who has a severe burn scar across half of his face. He can't talk. He's unresponsive, uh, but he can write with one of his hands. Uh, crudely. Uh, he's drawn three sixes and uh, implying that he knows a little something about what's going on. Uh, and he writes to them Servet, which is short for Servitary, an old cemetery from the Christian times that is now nothing but ruins. So Robert and Jennings drive to it. They arrive at dusk. I love this set piece. It looks like it's built on a soundstage, really spooky. Um, I just think it's, it's beautiful to look at. Mm. They discover a grave uh, of the mother, the birth mother of Damien, uh, dated the 6th of June, five years ago. And uh, next to that grave is a small infant's grave. Robert uh, deducts that this must be where his actual birth son is buried and that the woman must be the child, the mother of the child that he adopted. But when they lift the lid, they see the skeleton of a dog or the skeleton of a jackal causing some confusion. And then they deduce, well, if the 
uh, infant's grave has the skeleton of an animal as well, then my son might still be alive. But when they open it, it is the skeleton of a baby. So now we realize Damien is the son of a jackal. Yes, it's really cruel. Damien was born of a jackal and that his son was murdered. And upon realizing this, they are both attacked by Rottweilers that managed to escape, uh, climb the fence, get in the car, and drive away. Now that's horrible as well because all the do- it, it's viciously filmed, and I mean I don't know what they did to those dogs, right. but it was brilliantly done because you could kind you know the special effects and all that, the sound, and he <laughs> impaled himself through the railings, and he's trying to get his arm back off, all all building up to this horror of what's happening you know with his wife somewhere else kind of thing oh it's a great scene actually the the stunt double for jennings was injured by one of the dogs even though they took every precaution yeah Uh, now Catherine has woken up in the hospital robert has called her and says get the hell out of london i'm sending someone to bring you to rome and just cooperate with me she agrees to leave but when she's trying to get dressed we see Mrs. Baylock in her hospital room. And just like you said, she's trying to get this kind of sheer nightgown out from her head. And it does give her the look of, of the Virgin Mary. And uh, Mrs. Baylock, the evil nanny, closes in on her. And she plummets from the hospital window, crashing on top of an ambulance and dies. And uh, Robert is informed. And he tells Damien, uh, he tells Jennings that he wants Damien to die too. Now they go to meet with Bugenhagen, the man Father Brennan told him to, to meet with to learn how to kill Damien in this ancient city of Jezreel, uh, the place where Christianity began. Jennings is excused, you are not a part of this, and Robert is given the information. He's given a set of six daggers and tells him you must kill him on hollowed ground, a church, his blood must be spilled on the altar of God. The first knife uh, is to extinguish physical life and then he is to like stab him with the other knives in the shape of a cross. Tells him this is not a human child. Make no mistake. Have no pity for him. If you need proof, he will bear the birthmark of three sixes. So the Bible says. Robert's never seen it. I've bathed him and, and he's told, well, it's probably on his head under his hair. Uh, Robert explains his apprehension to Jennings and he throws the daggers away down an alley. Now, this scene is so iconic. Jennings goes to retrieve them and says he'll do it himself. But up a hill, a construction vehicle Uh, The emergency brake comes off and rolls down the hill. When it gets stuck on a rock, a sheet of of glass slides off and decapitates Jennings, whose head spins and spins and spins in the air. And it is one of the most iconic and important beheadings in cinematic history. Did you know that his ex-wife bought the prosthetic head with that was made of David Warner, but he found that weird. That's brilliant. I mean, ex-wife specifically. Ex-wife, but that's like terrific, isn't it? She Why must have been by the head. Must have been real pissed. Movie of the now dead David Warner. Yeah. David Bell yeah. earlier. Sorry, I'm a bit dyslexic and a bit weird, but um, no, I'm, I'm, what I meant was Warner. Brilliant. No, it's a great, it's a great scene. It uh, the it was shot and edited specifically so that the head keeps spinning. So if people close their eyes when they open them again, the head would still be spinning <laughs> and they would be forced to see it. <laughs> now this has caused Robert to change his mind. He's seen on a plane holding the daggers on his way back home. How he got them past TSA, I'll never know. Right. I think it was a private plane. It was a private plane. Is that it? That would make sense. He's a but government still, official, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
The Rottweiler <laughs> growls and approaches him, but Robert is able to trick it and lock it in the basement. And the, he uh, fetches a pair of shears and proceeds to uh, Damien's bedroom, where he starts to cut Damien's hair, looking for the birthmark. Horrible. And Horrible. he finds it. He finds his birthmark on his scalp, and now he well, knows he what he has to it, do. Like in a, oh, it was, you, you think of it just like 666 in a line, and yep. that, again, was shocking to me. Like, I believed it anyway, but you know what I mean? It could have been real. But to see it in a circle kind of way yeah. was even more like, you know, I never thought about it being written like that, and it's in his, underneath its hair. That was brilliant. It's a great image. It's a great little logo. <laughs> great logo. Now, out of nowhere, Mrs. Baylock screams and jumps on his back from behind. She claws at his eyes. She's strangling. Uh, the Rottweiler is barking downstairs, and she's just attacking the hell out of Robert. Damien wakes up and hides behind a chair, and there's a struggle. Uh, she bites him, and, and he kicks her in the face, and he knocks her out. Uh, Robert grabs Damien, and they fall down the stairs together. Damien is out cold. Robert begins to gather him, but Mrs. Baylock attacks again, and... Robert is able to stab her in the neck, killing her. It's a great scene. Apparently, they filmed a lot more of the fight, but they cut it because it was just a little too much. Right, and didn't she have a nice pick and the fork in at one point? I think ice pick inside of the head for, uh, yeah, it's insane. It's It all happens real fast. And, nope. and a fork thing in the other, in the neck. Yeah, Robert, oh, Robert uh, throws Damien into the car and is uh, driving away real fast. When he leaves the mansion, the security guard at the mansion gate starts pursuing him, assuming that Robert is in some kind of danger. Uh, he's driving the car with one hand and he's got Damien pinned in the passenger, side, uh, passenger seat with the other hand, screaming and fighting uh, while the police car is following close behind. Robert pulls into the church and carries a kicking and screaming Damien along with him, laying him out on the altar and producing the six daggers. He holds one above Damien who protests, please daddy, no, no daddy, no. And Robert asks God for help before raising the dagger when the police bust in and fire a shot. And it's very impactful. We don't see Robert get hit. What we see is a cut to a funeral. It's a joint funeral for Robert and Catherine. And a soldier plays taps on a horn as their caskets are lowered into the ground. We don't know who it's for, do we? It could be Damien or the father, couldn't it? That's a good point. I guess I never thought about that. Praying that it would be, obviously, Damien. Right, right. So That's a good point. Yeah, and I always was freaked with that because you just, you don't know how big the coffins are. One looks kind of little and one looks big, to my mind at the time, I remember. And going, oh, God, he's gone. Because they can't do Gregory Peck and it's going to finish, you know, in my little innocence at the time. Yeah. Um, even though I wasn't that young, but um and then it just pans down and you're going and you know his face is gonna turn around, don't you? Yeah. You just know it. Because he's seen whole we, we see the backs of the backs of two people's heads, and it turns out to be Mr. President, quote, and the first lady. And um they pan down the back of their heads and we see the first lady holding the hand of a child who turns around and smiles at the camera, and it's Damien. Oh, is moving to America, maybe to be raised by the president uh, and work his way up into American politics. Right. Because they were going to meet the president, weren't they? They were talking about having meetings with him and, right. you know, they found it close because he was the ambassador to England. Yeah, they had a relationship. So we fade to black and a text panel appears reading, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666 from the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 18. End of film, The Omen. 
We love it. Here on Rick or Treat Horrorcast, we have a rating system, and we're going to rate this film real quick. Uh, a movie is either a trick, which means it's okay, it's a treat, which means you love it, or it's a smell my feet, which means it sucks. Adam, how would you rate The Omen? What was the number one again? The best is treat. The best is treat. Love The Omen. Yeah. I'll go for that for sure. Treat. Yeah, it's a classic for a reason. Absolute treat. Uh, yeah, timeless, beautifully shot, beautifully acted, and uh, never get tired of it. And you know that smile at the end? Yeah. Um, the director started using reverse psychology on the kid. Oh, yeah? The kid obviously had a bit of a, a devil inside him, shall we say. Sure. And <laughs> by that time, he'd learned, and he went, listen, we're going to take your face. Don't smile whatsoever, because it'll ruin the whole film. So if you yeah. just look down the camera lens, just look with no expression at all. We'll just keep it on you for a couple of minutes, but honestly, don't smile whatsoever, knowing that the kid would. That's brilliant. I mean, he took the shot, and that's the most brilliant smile. Because how can a kid like that be evil? Right. But he's got a look of it. Yeah. But the evil in him was just to go, don't tell me what to do because I'm going to smile anyway if I want. It's the perfect and I was smile. Like, Whoa, that's perfect smile. It's you know brilliant. I mean? The ending a little reminds me of The Bad Seed and Rhoda Penmark. Yes, uh, yes. You know, surviving at the end of that movie. Well, listen, I can't thank both of you enough for taking the time to be on this show. This has been such a great episode. I'm such a fan of both of you. And, oh, um, lovely. I'm thank lovely. you. And, um, you, you read that very well as well, the, the synopsis. I didn't really good, yes. Okay, so, um, thank you so very yeah, much. That, that was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was nice uh, meeting you. You as well. Be sure to stay up to date on Adam and Tracy's upcoming short horror film, End of Story, by following on Instagram at End of Story Short Film. And if you're in New York City, you have to see Here We Are, Stephen Sondheim's final musical. This is musical theater history. The show has been extended through January 21st, and their final block of tickets have gone on sale. I can't recommend it enough. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Rick or Treat Pod and on YouTube by searching Rick or Treat Horrorcast. Join the hundreds of YouTube subscribers and thousands of viewers by subscribing and liking. If you'd like to send me a treat, my Venmo is at Rick or Treat. Now I have a special holiday surprise for you. Rather than waiting two weeks for the next episode, next week I'll be discussing 1980s slasher spectacular. Slash stacular? I don't know. New Year's Evil with budding horror filmmaker Kristen Noriega. So get your New Year's resolutions ready before it's too late. And we'll see y'all later, spookies. Thanks for coming trick-or-treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. My website, rickertreat.com, is designed and maintained by Evelyn DeVere. The show's social media content is created by my evil minion and social media manager, Stanley Martin. The Rickertreat logo was designed by Philip Romano. Contact information and links to these artists can be found in the episode description. Check them out, they're frighteningly talented. Rickertreat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rickertreat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well, they're coming to get you, listener. <laughs> mm-hmm.